Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to episode 29 of Creativity School. If you're a regular listener, I'm so glad you came back. And if you're new, I'm so happy you're here. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. I love listening to Audible for my books because it's really hard sometimes to find the time to actually sit down with a book. Don't get me wrong. I love me some paper books, but there is something so convenient about listening to your books the way you listen to podcasts. So I love Audible. And I also love Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass at Making Money, Master the Mindset of Wealth. If you're a regular listener of this show, you know that mindset is so important to creating anything awesome, and that includes creating wealth and abundance. So I really love this book. It's got 13,000 reviews on Amazon, so I'm not the only one that loves it. If you want to get started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial that you can cancel at any time, you can head over to creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. That's creativityschoolpodcast.com slash audible. If you use my link to sign up, you'll be directly supporting this show, and I hope you like Audible as much as I do. I hope you had an amazing week. I heard from a few of you who are also Barry fans. Shout out to you two people who told me you also like Barry. Barry is the show on HBO with Bill Hader. One of you messaged me and said, don't forget Noho Hank, aka Anthony Kerrigan, which yes, I agree. He is hilarious on the show. Body. That's what I say all the time, body. Um, He's really, really good. But I'm not binge listening episodes of podcasts with Anthony Kerrigan. No, no, no. I spent the week binge listening to all the podcasts Bill Hader has done. I know I get really, really obsessed when I like something. And I was driving to a shoot this week. I had a shoot. It was literally 100 degrees outside. And we had a photo shoot. And as I was driving to my shoot, I started listening to Anna Ferris's podcast with Bill Hader, which, true story, I once got a voicemail. And uh, when I was listening to it, it was like, hi, this is Anna Ferris, and I'm calling to book a photo shoot with you. And I was like, what the F? Like, is this for real? And I called her back and it was. So yes, I have done a photo shoot with her. But anyway, so I was listening to her podcast with Bill Hader, and they are so funny together. And all of a sudden, they started doing this like drunk thing. They were talking really, really slow. And I don't even know how they got into this, okay? And it's just, it's just like going on for a really long time. And like even their laughs are in slow motion and drunk. And I'm like, wow, you guys are really committed to doing this really weird drunk character thing. And why is this going on forever? I don't even know how you started doing this. And then I looked down at my phone and I realized I had put the podcast on half speed. (laughs) 
yeah, like my thighs pushed it into half speed mode and I didn't even realize it. But they're both such total weirdos that, you know, it would make sense that they would be really committed to this drunk slurring character. So anyway, I thought that was hilarious, but that was a really good episode. So if you guys want to go down the rabbit hole with me, I would totally recommend that. And yeah, don't sleep on Barry. I'm totally talking about this like I'm the expert when I'm all late to the party, (laughs) like the show came out a year ago. But yeah, I'm still really liking the show. It's very good. I'm also watching Mr. Robot. I've been on this like weird dark TV show thing lately. Normally I'm into like really fluffy Korean drama rom-coms and these are like the total opposite of that. But Mr. Robot, also a really good show. What shows are you guys watching? I'm curious. Are you into like the dark stuff? Are you into like the light fluffy stuff? Send me a message and let me know. I'm curious what other shows are out there that you're into. I'm on vacation this week, you guys, traveling with my son and my husband. So this week for episode 29, it's a rerun. It's a best of episode. It's an episode that's one of my favorites and it's one of your favorites based on downloads. And it is with my guest, Sheena Chang, who is the owner of Crooked Calligraphy, a modern calligraphy studio. Sheena is an amazing calligrapher and an incredible calligraphy teacher. And I love her story because it is all about quitting the traditional linear path to success that everybody puts on us, whether it's our parents, it's society, it's ourselves. Sheena shares about how she overcame all of that to start her own business as a calligrapher. Sheena started her journey on a very traditional path to success. She has a tiger mom. She got a perfect 1600 on her SATs. Like she was in the Korean newspaper about this. She went to Harvard. She went on to become a very successful attorney making six figures and she quit it all burned it all down to figure out what it is that she wanted out of life. And now she's got this awesome career as a calligrapher. And she is here to share with us all about that journey, how she even started to discover what it was that she wanted to do, not what everyone else wanted her to do, but what she wanted to do, and how she's now become an amazing calligrapher with the huge following of people that love her work and all the inspiration that she has to offer. I hope you enjoy this episode with Sheena as much as I did. If you've already listened to it, this is a good time to catch up on all the other episodes you haven't listened to. I'll be back next week with a fresh episode. And until next time, put something great out there. Hi, Sheena. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Grace. I am super excited to be here. So let's just start this off right off the bat by getting into your story, because when I heard it, I thought it was so amazing and inspiring. You say you quit the more traditional path to success. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, totally traditional path to success. So first of all, I'm Korean American. (laughs) And I mean, I just had their typical tiger mom totally focused on education. My parents really thought that that was the only way to secure a stable and, you know, prosperous Mm -hmm. future. So I had tutors for everything. Um, I started playing the piano when I was five years old and I basically wasn't allowed to quit until I was 18. So (laughs) I was basically a concert pianist by the end of it. I did, I mean, every single extracurricular activity. I always got straight A's. B's just like 
were not allowed. I think I got <laughs> one B plus in penmanship in like fourth grade. And I remember my mom marching up to my teacher to try and change my grade. Oh um, my God. I know. And it didn't work. And that was like the one year in elementary school that I didn't get straight A's and it was a blemish on my record. That's actually hilarious given <laughs> that you're a calligrapher now. I know, right? The irony <laughs> is not lost on me. And then, yeah, I mean, just straight through my childhood, the sole goal was to get into an Ivy League college. And I did. I actually got a perfect score on the SATs. Oh I got God. a 1600 because I studied for the SATs for like four years. I started Ooh. in eighth grade and I went to SAT school like every weekend, pretty much sometimes more than that all through the summer. I mean, it was just, it was all, you know, everything was all of that. And, you know, I did, I got into Harvard University. I remember the excitement. I remember um, feeling like I had done it. I was so happy, but then I set foot on campus and <laughs> was like, oh, now what? <laughs> what do I do now? You know, like my, the whole goal of all of my childhood was to get to that college. And then I had no, and I was following every prescribed path and I was doing, you know, what I was supposed to be doing. And I got to college and for the first time had to ask myself like, now, now what? And I ended up studying psychology because it was really interesting to me. And I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do in the future. Of course, my parents wanted me to explore medicine, you know, pre-med, and that just didn't sound very interesting to me. But law was kind of always in the picture as just a, a prestigious, secure path that everybody told me I was good at. You know, I had been on the speech and debate team. And so that was sort of always in the background. But I, I studied psychology. I still didn't know by the end of the four years of undergrad what I wanted to do with my life. So I ended up going to Japan for two years to teach English and taught these Japanese high schoolers. And it was an amazing time. But by the end of that two years, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I think more importantly than that, I didn't know how to ask. I didn't even know how to begin figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't even know how to answer the question, like, what actually makes me happy and what do I actually want to do? I have a very, very, very similar background, by the way. I'm like, did we have the same mom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I also started piano at five years old. I played all the wow. way, you know, to till I was 18 when I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And I think... It's hard to know what you like when everyone else is telling you what you're supposed to like. Yes. So it's not surprising that, you know, coming out of that, you were like, what am I supposed to do? Well, and even sort of deeper than that, I was constantly getting praised for things mm. that I was doing right and for things that I was doing as I should be doing. And I don't remember getting praise for just playing, you know, and, and doing things sort of for no reason. The praise was always for that good piano recital or that good test score, concrete achievements like that. So yeah, all of my value and self-worth was hung on these external achievements. I relate to that so much, by the way, because I'm still actually unraveling that now as yes. an adult in my career. And I don't know if you feel like that affects your career now. Yeah. Oh, no, it's totally. I have not sh shooken that off. <laughs> totally. I'm yeah. working on it, but it's still there. Yeah. I, I mean, and it, you know, it went with me all through even into what was I at this point in my story, 22, 21, 23, something like that. I still didn't know, you know, what I wanted to do. And that's why I went to law school. And I feel like that's a, the reason why a lot of people go to law school is you just kind of don't know <laughs> what your life is supposed to look like. And law school seems like a prestigious, safe, secure thing to do. And they tell you that you can sort of do a lot of things with a law degree. And I went into law school thinking, I'm never going to be a corporate lawyer. Like, that's the last thing I want to do. If anything, I'm going to like, you know, work for a nonprofit or I'm going to help people. 
And of course, what did I end up doing after law school is working in a corporate law firm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, and law school was kind of an extension of how my life had always been. Working at a corporate law firm was the path of least resistance. It was the path you were supposed to take. It was the one that the law school sort of set up for you and made easy. And it was also, you know, I was $200,000 in debt after law school and a corporate law firm was paying, I think, $145,000 in uh, salary right out of the gate. That's hard to turn down. (laughs) Yeah. And I ended up at a big corporate law firm right in the middle of Manhattan. It was crazy, crazy hours, crazy expectations. Uh, You were just expected to be on call all the time. It was basically your life. And I was very, very unhappy there. So I decided to move back to Los Angeles, um, where I was from originally. And I transferred with the same law firm, worked in Los Angeles for a couple of years. It was a little bit better. People sort of went home at more of a reasonable hour, but then still worked from home, you know, so it was still pretty demanding, a little bit less crazy than New York. But I just knew it kept building. It was that feeling that you just can't ignore sort of deep Mm -hmm. down in your belly that there had to be something more. And so when you started feeling like that, did you start doing things to actively get yourself out of that funk? What were you doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I tried. (laughs) I had always had a creative spark. And it's kind of not surprising because actually my parents are both artists, which is so Really? Yeah. My mom was like a straight up like fine arts abstract painter like she created these huge free-flowing canvases and and showed at art galleries and museums there are photos of me when I'm two years old sort of running around in museums with her and was this in Korea or in the Um, states no in the states even when she came like when she first came to the states she did this Um, and my dad is a writer so he writes about artists and he writes plays and he writes book books of poetry but I think my parents when they had me and my sister you know, wanted to make a more stable living. So they both kind of had to shelve a lot of that. And they started their own business and um, made sort of a a Korean kind of newspaper for the Korean community in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. Which is still pretty creative, too. That's really interesting that they did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad still wrote for the paper. Uh, My mom designed you know, for the newspaper and laid out all the ads and stuff. So they used a little bit, but it was definitely not... I think the creative, sort of the wild creative expression that they started with. So uh, it's kind of funny how that st- how that that echoes through, you know, into their children yeah. as well. Yeah. So really quick question yeah. then to go back to them wanting you to go to an Ivy League school like every Korean parent's dream, mm-hmm. right? Do you think that that was because they wanted you to have maybe the financial stability that they didn't have, or was it for the prestige? What was the I think it was both. the motivation for that? Both? I think yeah. it was both. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they they ended up doing pretty well with their business, like comfortable, you know, middle class. But I think they struggled in the beginning, and I think they never wanted us to have that insecurity. I think you're right about that. But yeah. you know, there is also the prestige. When I got a, my a perfect score on the SATs, like I was in all the newspapers and the. <laughs> Korean, <laughs> in the Korean newspapers in the San Fernando Valley. And like, wow. parents, you know, my parents, my mom especially was very proud of that and like very proud that I was reflecting well on them. And yeah, I mean, I, so it was, there was definitely some of that. And so because you had them as these examples of creativity, do you feel like 
that gave you permission maybe on the side to keep exploring? Like if we go back to how you felt working at this corporate job, feeling in this funk, how did you, what did you do from there? I tried lots of different creative hobbies. And I did that Mm. thing where I, maybe a lot of people can relate where I just, my closet started to fill up with DIY supplies that I would would use for two weeks and then never use again. That was my closet for sure. And then that would become a source of guilt. I mean, I had a sort of, uh, I had to kind of unravel that relationship with creativity because in the beginning, I always had to be creative with a purpose in mind, like Mm. with an end product in mind. So I could never just sit down and create something just for the joy of learning it or creating it. I I always felt like it was a waste unless I was making like flowers for my sister's wedding or like a scarf for someone or something to decorate my apartment with that would be useful and functional. I resonate with that so much. And I think a lot of Asian Americans or other people even would relate to that because it feels like a complete waste of time. Yeah. Why would you do something like that? So did you just start giving yourself the permission to knit for fun or did, you know, what were you doing at that time? I eventually got to a point where I just, I knew something had to change. So I did end up eventually quitting my corporate law job. And a lot of people ask me about that and sort of how I was able to get there. And I think a lot of people have this illusion that, you know, people who take the leap from corporate to creative are just like, you just fling yourself off a cliff and you mm-hmm. hope something magical will happen and you like sort of <laughs> grow a pair of wings on the way down. Like, no, 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 no. I was, I'm way too risk averse to take just a flying leap like that. So for me, I really had to build myself, I guess, a backup parachute, maybe also a bungee cord, and then yeah. you know, maybe also a net down there somewhere. <laughs> and like, I had to have a bunch of things in place in order to feel comfortable taking that leap. And what was that? I had saved up quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, you know, being paid a lot as a corporate lawyer, but I, I just lived frugally. That's kind of the way that I was raised. Mm-hmm. So um, I had saved up about $100,000. Wow. Yeah, which is a lot. And I, I kind of hesitated at first to tell people that because, you know, would they think like, oh, yeah, of course you're rich and entitled and of course you could quit your job. <laughs> I mean, and no, I don't think anybody thinks that. I think it, I worked hard. I saved up that money. I still had some law school debt. But the point is that was what I personally needed in order to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to have a different level that they're comfortable at. So I first of all had that and that was really, really, I mean, I still was terrified, but that was what I needed. I left the law firm on good terms um, and I was very good um, as a lawyer there. So I was pretty sure that I could get a job back with them if I needed to. My best friend had an extra bedroom in his condo. So he charged me a pretty low rent. So I knew I had somewhere to stay. But then I also, I got part-time work once I quit, I found a job helping high school students with their college applications, just sort of with the essays and the whole application process. So I got that as sort of seasonal work. So I wasn't bringing in nothing. Yeah, no, that's really, really fascinating because I was in a very similar position when I quit my job to go explore my creativity for myself. And I also just felt like I needed a lot of safety nets in case whatever happened went wrong. And I also freelanced and did that as well, which is also why I think side hustles are really amazing because Mm -hmm. while you have a full-time income, you can start developing what you you want your future to look like. But for you, is that when you started exploring the things you liked? Is that when you found calligraphy during that time after you quit? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, I quit and I gave myself a year 
just to rest, maybe explore some things, but like really with no expectations of, you know, starting a business or finding myself or my new career. I figured after, what was this, like 32 years at that point of just like working my butt off, I had earned (laughs) a year of rest. So that was, I think, really important to give myself. I mean, not that I didn't freak out during that year, you know, and ask myself what was happening and and do a bunch of things. But I at least mentally gave myself a definite period of time so that I could just explore things and explore myself really without Mm -hmm. so much pressure. So for the first year, I was kind of lazy. I did some exploring and I started at the end of that year to take just creative workshops I just kind of did stuff that sounded fun. So I took a watercolor workshop. Let me see, what did I try? Woodworking, figure drawing. I started up actually a knitting Etsy shop. So I like had created some knitting patterns and I I knit up some stuff and put it on an Etsy shop. I started a blog, but sort of with more kind of DIY stuff and with some cooking stuff because I was doing a lot of cooking at the time and some more of my creative endeavors. What else? I took a creative writing course. I did some intuition painting. Oh my God. I love that you did all this. Yeah. I just kind of like would find workshops and things that sounded fun and I also, which was really important for the overall scheme of things and for also changing like my my mindset and my insides, which was the most important part, was um, I found a life coach. Mm. She actually was the woman who was teaching the watercolor workshop that I was taking. And we ended up sort of talking about where I was in my life. And uh, she was just starting up her life coaching business. And she had a similar sort of story to mine where she was in a big corporate field and had left to pursue more artistic things. So I really connected with her on that level. And so we started working together. And I think that's really when stuff started to shift because she helped me really look inside at just basic things like what drives me, what kinds of affirmations and things do I respond most positively to? What if I don't have it in my life Am I always going to feel sort of unmotivated and uninspired? Like what actually makes me tick? So she's actually the one who helped me to start to be able to answer that question that I never had been able to answer before of what do I want? Wow. And it was a, yeah, it was a more complicated question than I ever thought. <laughs> it is so deep. It's like once you start digging, you can't stop because there's just so many levels to our conditioning and the things that we feel like we're supposed to do. And yeah. I find that amazing that she was teaching one of your workshops. Is that what she said? Yeah, she was teaching a watercolor <laughs> workshop. I found it on, I think a friend sent me a Groupon that she found. I was like, ah, all right, I'll give it a try. It was like an introduction to watercolor workshop and the teacher of it. Yeah. Was, oh, that was totally I, meant to be. Yeah. And I'm still working with her now. It's oh my God. five years five years later, I think. And so because you had spent so much time exploring all these other avenues like painting and woodworking and knitting, when you came across calligraphy, did it feel like an aha moment? Did you know immediately that was what you wanted to do? Or was that also sort of a process for you? It felt different. Mm. Yeah. And I remember the feeling of walking into the workshop and it was just one of those beautifully laid out workshops and all the calligraphy supplies were sort of gorgeous on the table. And my name was written in this beautiful modern calligraphy style that I now do. And I just struck me as 
so, so beautiful. And so like it resonated with me in, in a way that the other things hadn't. So yeah. And then it was a three hour workshop. I remember it flew by. I was sort of completely in the flow almost the entire time. And I just did not want to stop practicing afterwards. A lot of people ask me like, how do you, how do you find your passion? You know, like, do you, and it's kind of a question that I, I feel like I still haven't figured it out completely either. What actually it is to find your passion. I don't think it's that you just discover it somewhere, like it's been there the whole time and you just had to like stumble across it. I think it's a mix of your mentally and emotionally open to it and open to exploring things and then finding something in particular that hits a lot of notes for you. Yes, that's a great, great way to explain that. And I think what even starts that process going is exactly what you did where you just gave yourself the permission to try a lot of different things and see what then resonated with you mentally and emotionally. Yeah, yeah. So, because if I, I think about it, if I had if I had taken a calligraphy workshop back when I was still a corporate lawyer, I don't know actually what would have happened. I'm pretty sure I would have loved it still, you know, and I'm pretty sure I would have liked practicing and everything, but I don't think I would have fallen into it as as deeply as I did mm. when I was really ready for it and. It did take a lot of doing lots of other things in order for me to figure out like, ah, you know, with woodworking, I, I love the wood, but it's so exact and you have to measure things exactly. And it's just, you know, that I don't like that aspect of it. And it just I had to try all these different things. And then I was ready to see that calligraphy. Oh, it is this marriage of it sort of flows really easily. You can create something pretty quickly. Um, it has a lot of creativity to it, but then it also has these very strict boundaries. Like in the end of the day, your stuff has to be legible. Like <laughs> the whole goal is for somebody to be able to read this thing that you wrote. So there are these bounds that you get to play within. And that ended up for me being the perfect balance of things. And it shows because your calligraphy is amazing. And this is an audio medium. But man, <laughs> if you guys go to her Instagram, you'll be blown away. So your business is called Crooked Calligraphy. Yeah. How would you describe what you do? Oh, that's a good question. And it's, you know, constantly shifting, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, I would call myself a an unconventional calligrapher. Because you are basically, when I look at your work, I'm like, oh, it's classy meets curse words. I yep. mean, like you're not afraid to just be real. Um, what are some of like your favorite sayings that you have created into art? Oh, um, and you can curse. Yeah. So oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just making sure. I mean, I start my very first Instagram post on my crooked calligraphy, you know, feed was, ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> um, and it, so I just kind of let off with what I wanted to say. I was very clear about how I was going to approach things. Um, motherfucker is just such a good one to write in calligraphy for some reason that like you can do a lot with it um and it rolls off the tongue <laughs> well, it's such a fun juxtaposition because you have yeah. this beautiful elegant scripty calligraphy and you mm -hmm. have motherfucker how did you even decide to go down that path and why is it that these curse words resonate with you so much so I think it's because I entered calligraphy and sort of the creative world in a very non-traditional way. Like I didn't go to art school, you know, or design school or sort of grow up in that tradition. So I was just honestly, 
approaching calligraphy was with what was going on in my life and in my mind at that moment. And when I started, it was definitely like, you know, God, fuck, what am I doing? <laughs> like, what is this life? What's, what's happening? How do you figure things out? It's all, you know, and I definitely, I needed inspiration and I needed motivation, but I did not ring true for me in the sort of very sweet, sweetly optimistic way that is sort of often that it's often presented as, you know, like, like follow your dreams and do what you love and love what yeah. you do. And, you know, and that kind of stuff was just, it was a little bit too high up. I, I don't know how to describe it. It was a little bit too just like uh, polished for me. So I, I, to me, it was more true to say like, yeah, fuck, follow your fucking dreams. You know, just like, just to throw <laughs> a little bit of grit in there, a little bit of like realness. And, you know, I mean, one side of me was uh, was thinking also like, oh, I mean, this is something kind of that I haven't seen as much of. And I think that I could find a good niche here for a business. Um, and my first business idea when I started out with all of this um, was to create greeting cards. And I just, you know, swear words on greeting cards, like shit, you're old and happy fucking birthday and happy birthday, bitch. <laughs> like it just goes, you know, it's kind of a natural it. And I just kind of showed some of my ideas to my friends and people seem to be into it. So that's sort of the, the route that I decided to take. But despite part of it being strategic, I also, I want to say it has to also be authentic to you. Like you cannot fake a voice and a point of view for, for years and years and have it work out if it's not yes. really coming from you. Yes. It, uh, you just raised two really good points there. Number one is that you specifically did it because it was strategy. You were trying to find your point of differentiation in the market, which I think is so important as a small business trying to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. But number two, that differentiation absolutely needs to be authentic. It would be horrible if you were uncomfortable with cursing and here you are trying to get attention doing art with curse words all over it. Yeah. It's so you have to be so authentic to who you are. And have you ever felt nervous about doing it? Have, have you ever felt like you shouldn't be doing that, even though you knew you wanted to and you knew that was authentically you and your voice coming through? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, in, in the beginning, um, you know, it was it was easier to throw things up on my Instagram because, you know, nobody was watching. I don't know. I had like, what, 10 followers. I didn't know who was going to be there. But I also knew, you know, maybe the cursing isn't for everyone. Like I had to really think about in the beginning, like, okay, if I do want to work with sort of larger companies, like brands out there that have a particular image, are they going to go for crooked calligraphy and all the cursing? Like, is this going to turn off a huge swath of people? Yeah, probably. There's probably a, lots of people out there who want nothing to do with me because I curse. But then there's this little group of people out there that love it, that like can't mm -hmm. get enough, that, that it, it's what bonds them to me is the fact that I have this particular voice. So yes, I was definitely nervous in the beginning um, to take this route. Um, I even in the very beginning created a separate, just like Sheena Chang calligraphy, sort of more vanilla brand that I could maybe use if I was doing more like wedding stuff or traditional, you know, or going out to brands. And I even had a separate Instagram for it. And honestly, within like two months, that was gone. I wasn't really using it because the crooked calligraphy part was where my, my heart really was. I love that because that's brave. That's to, to fully be yourself on social media, even though there's people out there who can 
hate on you for it. Mm-hmm. I, I personally find that really brave and something that I struggle with. Uh, I've had my business for 10 years now. And 10 years ago, people weren't craving the sort of authenticity and vulnerability people want now. Mm. It was very different. It, uh, you had to be just very polished. And I felt like I had to be very filtered all the time. Huh. Uh, brands were not aligning themselves politically with anything. I mean, you just had to put on like a shiny, happy face. And it's shifted a lot over the years. And even now, I am trying to be comfortable in finding my own voice in social media and not being afraid to be myself completely because I still have this sense where I feel like I have to be very filtered all the time. Mm -hmm. Are you ever afraid of that? Because it doesn't seem like it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do you you get the balls to just take off all the masks and be yourself (laughs) and do what you want on your social media? And how can others do the same? Yeah, I... um... I'm not completely fearless. I think that's sort of, that's an illusion. I definitely feel fear and I do it anyway. So I think there's a distinction there. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not just, I'm like not some magical unicorn who sort of like feels no, you know, fear and I just go out and do whatever the fuck I want. And um, <laughs> I still, I kind of still have to take it in stages. I, I think part of it is that I'm old, I'm, I'm 37. So I, I don't have, I'm a little more secure in myself just through living life. And, mm-hmm. and accomplishing things and you know than I was at 27 I don't think I would be doing this at 27 I also you know again put myself out there in a very clear way so people know exactly what they're getting so it's not like I'm sort of you know hiding things and then sort of trying to peek them up now and then um, so that makes it easier um, I haven't gotten very much hate or sort of negative comments in the three years that I've been doing this I've gotten maybe a handful So I um, consider myself really lucky um, about that. I also, and I think this is really important, I believe in the reason that I'm doing this. I'm not just throwing up curse words to just like get a rise out of people and get attention. And, you know, that's, I, I love it when people respond well to like a really beautiful fuck, you know, written in calligraphy. That's great. But there's a purpose and a message and a mission under there. So I think that's what gives me the drive and the conviction to really put stuff out there and be behind it. And I think that drive is just like, yeah, be yourself and go out there and and have your own voice. And maybe it's not the ideal kind of sweet, optimistic journey that everybody thinks it should be. Like maybe there's a lot of shit in the way that you have to get over, but you get over it. And that's kind of the message that underlies everything. And that's why I can respond to people who come at me with, you know, well, I'm unfollowing you because of your swear words or like, too bad you're you're so in the toilet. You're very talented. But, you know, you're <laughs> like, Shh, yeah. I mean, I've gotten all those comments before, but I can honestly come back at them and say, I totally get that this is not your thing. Feel free to unfollow. I am expressing myself and this is how I need to do it. That's rad. And that really, it takes a certain level of self-confidence to even be able to do that. Because I know mm-hmm. when you're starting to and you start hearing feedback from people and it's not what you want to hear, it hurts. It's personal. Yeah. You know, when you do creative work, it it's personal. Were you always confident or is that something that you've had to work on as you've been doing Crooked Calligraphy? Oh, 
it's definitely a work in progress. So I still, so, you know, everything that I said before, it gave me sort of that um, underlying confidence. But honestly, a lot of the confidence comes from just doing it, putting yourself out there, and then seeing what happens. Because a lot of times, it's not what your worst fear is. Um, a lot of times, people respond to it way better than you think. And I think that's because of what you were saying, that people do crave authenticity these days and like a genuine connection. So actually, it doesn't have to be, you know, curse words and crazy over the top things like that. One of the um, things I shared on Instagram that got the most um, feedback from people was just when I shared that I work out of my second bedroom in my condo and I have a little studio there that I've set up and it looks really nice and like a creative space and it looks ideal. But then you walk across the hallway and I'm sharing a bedroom with, you know, my boyfriend and his daughter. And we have two beds stuffed in there and it's a little crowded um, and it doesn't look great. But that's what we do so that, you know, I can have my creative studio. That's the kind of stuff that people resonate with. It doesn't have to be crazy curse words. It's just sort of your real journey and your real struggles and not having it so polished, showing sort of the rough underbelly of it sometimes. And people really resonate with that because it's real. It is. Yeah. Because everything we see these days is perfectly polished. And frankly, I'm a little bit sick of it, which is why I think I love your work because, (laughs) you know, just looking at it, it's gorgeous. And then you see the super real sentiment in there. It's it's great in this super Instagram worthy world we live in right now. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people have a fear of walking into something new like you did because I don't know, maybe they'll feel like a failure. Uh, What they spent all their time doing up to this point was a total waste of time. Maybe they're afraid other people are going to look at them and be like, you spent all this time doing this thing, like getting perfect SAT scores and going to Harvard. I personally don't believe in failure. I think that everything you do just brings you a step further down the path that you're meant to be on. So for you, Sheena, do you feel like there are things in your past life and career that you're able to incorporate now into your present day life? Oh, absolutely. All the time. I mean, I can start with practical things like being a corporate lawyer. I mean, I can respond to emails really professionally. I can organize workflow, can, you know, put together a contract and send it in a professional way. I can be responsive. I can make things easy for the client. Um, I know how to write fairly well. There's just so many things that I am using from my past and my background. I never regret anything that I've done in the past. But I think deeper than that, it's all a part of my story. And my story is what resonates with people. The more that I reveal about my working in corporate law, how I got there, even beyond that, how you know I was raised and grew up in a certain kind of environment and now have to fight against that, the more of that I incorporate into what I present you know, on Instagram, even on my, you know, in my online courses that I sell, you know, as a teacher, as a calligraphy teacher, even as just a calligrapher making pretty things for people, people love my story. And I think people just love stories. People just love to hear where actually other people are coming from. They are seeking a point of connection with people. So absolutely, my story and everything that I've done in the past, that's like my greatest weapon. I um, could be the most talented calligrapher in the world, 
But if I didn't put anything out there about myself or why I am the way that I am or why my art is the way that it is, I just don't think that people would resonate with it the way that they do now. It's true. And I love that this conversation keeps wrapping around back to this idea of having to find your own authentic voice Mm -hmm. and really being unafraid to put it out there. How do you think people even begin to tap into doing that, into finding their own voice? Because I think especially as artists and creatives, a lot of people have trouble doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, especially in the beginning when you're first starting to learn your craft, a lot of it is copying, a lot of it is imitating the people that you admire. So how do people begin to veer into finding who their authentic self is and putting it out through their work? So a lot of it is that internal work. And I know that's kind of a vague statement. So I'm going to go back to uh, you had actually touched in your last question upon like the fear of failure. And that, uh, yeah, I know, like, it's so universal, right? I mean, there's just such a huge fear of failure everywhere, especially if you're the kind of person who has followed a prescribed path, and you've been generally good at the things that you've tried, and you haven't really failed before. Failure can be so, so petrifying. Once I sort of looked at that fear and sort of, there's a method, um, I think Tony Robbins uses this, and like, you know, my life, life coach told me about it, but it's, it's sort of taking your fear and letting it go to the most extreme end point and the most extreme conclusion that it can go to. So it's like, okay, if I put a curse word up on Instagram, your fear, right? That fear voice inside you saying, oh, but, but what if, what if people don't like it? And then what if people start unfollowing you? And then what if everybody unfollows you? And then what if you don't make any money? And what if you lose your house and your family disowns you and you end up homeless on the street and then you get a disease and then you die? It's always, if you follow the fear to it's where it wants to go, it's always you end up homeless in the street and you die. Yeah. <laughs> so once you understand it as this, like, it's just this basic primal thing that's trying to protect you, you know, it's trying to keep you safe in this world. It was sort of built to protect you from, you know, tigers and like extreme cold and just stuff that we don't have to deal with these days, but it's still there operating in your head, telling you all the time that you're going to die homeless in the street. So once you kind of see that for what it is, then you can start to back up and ask yourself, okay, am I, am I really going to lose all of my followers on Instagram? Is my family really going to reject me? Are all my friends really going to go away? Am I really going to end up homeless in the street? You know, and the answer always is no. So I think the start of it and that internal work is really like looking at that fear and letting it be there and then really getting into the root of it. And then once you understand it a little bit and where it's coming from and what it's trying to do, you know, protect you, it is has a little bit less of a grip on your life. It's so true because we're not going to end up dead and homeless on the street. And yeah. really, when you look at it that way, that thing you're afraid of really isn't so bad if you think about it. Yeah. Like putting your work out there, sharing it on Facebook or Instagram. If somebody leaves you a bad comment or doesn't like what you're doing, so what? It's not the end of the world. The other thing I found is, by the way, going back to that, most of the time, that has nothing to do with you. It has more to do with the person responding yes. than it has to do with the actual work that you're creating. Yes. So that fear of rejection isn't even real. Right. And uh, what you're saying about really trying to stretch beyond to find where that endpoint is of, of fear and how far it can go, I call that trying to find my personal boundaries. Mm. And I intentionally do that. I intentionally like to go 
where I'm very uncomfortable because I know that when I get to the other side and make it through that fear, there's something really great on the other side waiting for me, yeah. which is why I'm doing this podcast. It, you know, it's it's scary. And I have to say, the more I do it, the less scary it gets. And I think that's just general with fear. The more yes. you expose yourself to it, you grow a thicker skin and it's not really that scary anymore. Yes. So that's actually the second point that I was going to make about, you know, your original question of how do you actually do it? How do you actually put yourself out there and find your voice and start doing it despite the fear. So the first part is is really taking a look at that fear and getting to know it and, and trying to find out what it's about, you know, um, so that it has less of a grip on you. And the second thing is to take small steps and to start doing little things and then seeing, oh, I didn't end up homeless and dead in the street. And then doing another thing and going, ah, oh, you know, the worst thing didn't happen. So in terms of social media and in terms of sort of putting yourself out there as an artist, that can be as little as, you know, in the in the caption of your Instagram post or whatever, or your Facebook um, or description of your art, just pouring more of your own authentic story in there. And then maybe on things that don't last as long, like Instagram stories or a Facebook live or something like that, maybe putting a, showing a little bit more of your face and yourself out there and just taking it in small steps and maybe or maybe doing a piece that is still in the same style of the pieces that you've been doing, but has a little bit more of a personal touch and putting it out there and seeing what happens. It's taking little steps like that and then seeing after each one, oh, terrible things didn't happen. Actually, people responded rather well to you know what I had to say. Or maybe um, one person really responded well and connected with me as an artist that's one person that might be, you know, that's going to grow and spread word about you and maybe be a fan and maybe be a customer in the end, as opposed to maybe you got like 10 people who are like, meh, not so much into the personal part. The fear of rejection, it's not so much a fear, even if you get rejected. Does that make sense? So it's not the worst thing to get rejected. It's actually finding more of your people and your audience. You don't want everyone. You don't want to appeal to everybody out there. You can't. Like, it's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. And you have to yeah. bland yourself out so much in order to try and do that, that there's nothing left of you if you're going to try to appeal to everyone. So I think of it more as not, not as rejection, but as really finding, seeking out the, the true people who I want to connect with. That's really insightful. And your advice to just do small things is really great advice. Personally, I hate showing my face on my Instagram and social media and, um, you know, doing like an Instagram live would actually be really terrifying. And so to prepare for this podcast, I did an Instagram live. I talked impromptu for one hour. I answered questions about pet photography and I did it because I wanted to share and connect with my audience, but I also did it to purposely find my edges and do something that scared me. Mm -hmm. And what happened? I didn't end up dead and homeless. I actually <laughs> <laughs> I actually really liked the experience and it's not scary anymore. Yeah. So that's I, I love that. That's such practical advice for people. And so now you're here, it's been two years in your business now. How long has it been? Uh, three years. Three years. Yeah. Wow. So it's been three years and you have been living your best life with crooked calligraphy. <laughs> what has been the best, most unexpected thing that's come from doing this? Oh wow. Okay. 
I know what it is. It's the realization that everything is actually going to be okay. So I put it that way because that's actually the like the mantra. Everything is going to be okay. That's kind of my new mantra. I saw it on a piece of jewelry. I loved it. I bought it. That's what I tell myself. It sounds kind of flippant, but for me, it represents so, so much. And it represents such a profound shift in the way that I view the world. So I was raised, you know, in this with sort of this underlying belief that you have to work really hard and you have to be the best at everything and you have to get yourself into a really, really good, secure, safe, stable place or else you'll fail or die or you'll be pathetic or, you know, just any number of things, right? The world basically is a hard place and you have to struggle to carve out your niche in it and you have to hold on really hard and you have to work really hard and there's no room for play or fun or any of those things that can come later, if it comes at all. And that was the belief that I grew up with. And now it's shifted into a belief of, oh, I think I'm going to be okay. I think actually the world is not such a scary place despite everything that's happening <laughs> and despite it being scary in a lot of ways. But fundamentally to me, I think in the end, I'm going to be okay. So I have space. I have a little room to breathe. I have a little more permission to just play and do things just because they're fun and just because they make me happy. And maybe happiness is actually a very lofty pursuit and a worthy one, maybe even more worthy than just being safe and successful. So that's what that everything is okay represents to me. And that's really the best thing that I've learned from this journey. I went from thinking that the only way to get through life was through this very narrow prescribed path that everybody told me I had to do in a certain way. And that was the only way I could do it. And now I've sort of leaped over into this worldview where I can make it. I can survive. Like, even if calligraphy doesn't work out, I know that I can make money and build a living for myself and I'll be okay. Like, I have more faith in myself. That's the best thing that has come out of this. That was so beautiful. (laughs) I smiled through the entire time you were just speaking because I just feel like you are my spirit animal and I think I kind of have a crush on you now. (laughs) Um, That was so deep and so beautiful and so insightful because it goes to show it's not just about the product you're putting out there. It's what transformative experience you have on the inside from doing it. Mm -hmm. That was just so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. As far as the work you've been doing goes, what has been your favorite project so far? Because I know you do all kinds of things. Oh, gosh, my favorite thing so far. I really have to think about that because every time I really, really like and I get off on uh, figuring out new things. So every sort of new thing that comes along becomes my new um, favorite thing. (laughs) But probably the thing that's been sort of the most rewarding throughout has just been working with students and teaching them calligraphy and then watching what, what my students do after they learn calligraphy and after they learn that, oh, my calligraphy is actually like not bad or I can do this or I don't have to doubt myself so much or it's possible to sort of sell my calligraphy or make a living um, doing it, maybe even start a side hustle or plan to do this full time in two years. I've had students do all of those things. Um, So that kind of transformation has definitely been the most rewarding. But yeah, I've gotten to do some I've gotten to do some fun things. Um, One of the most fun things was I uh, was 
flown up to San Francisco to write on uh, scotch bottles, Glenmorangie scotch bottles for uh, an event. And that was just super fun because I love scotch. I am a whiskey girl and I got to do sort of a tasting of really old scotches as part of it as well. So that was great. I was getting paid and That's I was drinking so scotch. Fun. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, I have uh, taught calligraphy at Disney to Disney sort of artists and designers, which was really, really cool to just be on this Disney campus and sort of seeing, you know, in the offices around me, like them actually building these characters that become these icons of our childhood and just teaching these people who are actually drawing these things by hand and making them come to life was super, super awesome. I think calligraphy, when I first started, seemed like kind of a small world. Most people think of calligraphy and they think, oh, you do like weddings and stuff, right? But actually, the more I've gotten into it, the more it's expanded. And, you know, a lot of people need hand lettering. And um, everybody, everybody that I meet says like, oh, maybe I could use this or that. It just, it's expanded in, in such a beautiful way. That's awesome. And I this is actually a really great segue because I did want to ask you, what are some of the, the different ways you have monetized your talents with this business? Because I think it would help people to know when you're doing a service-based business like photography or calligraphy, the money you make is so intrinsically tied into the hours you work. But I think if you want to have a long, sustainable business, you need to have different income buckets, mm -hmm. especially buckets that are making you money where it's not directly tied to your hours. So it sounds mm -hmm. like you know, you're doing all these events, you um, have online courses. Is that what you said with, with your students? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, I totally agree with you there. It really, really helps to have some passive income and to have, yeah, you're right, different income buckets. That takes a little time to build. So I started with greeting cards um, and I literally was printing those at home on my home printer, cutting and scoring them by hand and stuffing them into envelopes that I got off Amazon and like shipping them out individually to people on Etsy. So I was making, I don't know, $1.50, $2 on each card. <laughs> that I was doing that way. So I started out doing stuff like that. And then I kind of quickly realized, oh, there's there's kind of no way <laughs> that I'm going to do this and make a living at making such small pieces and making such you know small amounts off each one. But I think it was really essential for me to get that experience you know, in the beginning to really hone my craft, to really um, know how to interact with customers, know how to photograph my work and market it and describe it and put it out there. All of that was really necessary. Um, but then I got into teaching calligraphy and that, you know, immediately was definitely more sort of lucrative for the, for the hours that I was putting in. Um, and I started out by teaching in-person workshops. So teaching people just one um, in classes of like 10 to 15. And again, I think that was crucial experience because that's where I really learned how to teach this stuff, what questions people were asking constantly all the time, what the most common struggles were, how to troubleshoot before people got into you know situations, how to present it in the easiest to follow way. So again, that was really valuable experience. And then from there, I went into online courses. So it's seen some other people do it and I just, you go online, you create a course once, you can sell it all over the world and you can sell it as many times as you can. 
right, is the sort of promise behind online courses and why it's so attractive. So I built my first online course last year and it took me a good eight months to get this course together because it's a, a sort of a large course. And I hired a videographer and I wrote out all the lessons and I created all the worksheets and I figured out how to market it and everything. And this year I released a second online course, which is an intermediate calligraphy course to sort of follow on to my first online course, which is a beginner one. And I think going forward, starting from next year, I'm going to do even more sort of online offerings, maybe of smaller bits and pieces that people want to learn about, but that are sort of easier to produce. Yeah, that's a large part of the promise of entering into a creative business is it doesn't have to be limited to the thing that you start out with. You can totally pivot. And thank you for sharing that with us. You laid it out so well from literally like when you started, you were doing these cards, making a dollar fifty profit mm-hmm. on each one to now scaling up to this online course that you're doing. And again, you've illustrated to us how it's so important just to do things step by step. It's not like you started out and went right to the online course thing. It's you started small and you just kept building and kept going with it. So I love that. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no. And I think a lot of people get stuck 